This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. For the month of August, Cultivating Place revisits four best-of conversations, this week with Leslie Bennett, the face behind Pine House Edible Gardens. She writes, For me, edible landscapes are a long-term relationship where my clients get to have all kinds of fun, seasonal experiences in their gardens and kitchens. My specific focus is on designing and building stylized vegetable and cutting flower gardens. In other words, working gardens that happen to have a beautiful structural design. Leslie proudly runs her garden design business out of and lives in Oakland, California with her husband, Linval Owens, and their young son, Samuel. She is the co-author, along with Stephanie Bittner, of The Beautiful Edible Garden, published in 2013. Leslie joins us via Skype. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you, Jennifer. I'm glad to be here. I always like to start with where my interviewee started. What, what do you remember as drawing you first to the plant world? I love that question. Actually, what comes to mind is I was reading a uh, Beatrix Potter, Peter Rabbit, to my two-year-old son yesterday. And it was the story of Peter Rabbit in the garden and eating cabbages. And um, and I really thought to myself, what a great little story this is. And it was definitely a part of my childhood. And my mother is English. And I think my mother and sort of our English background really brought gardening into my life from early on. The idea of the garden, not a backyard, just those sort of choices of words. Mm -hmm. Um, My mother was very careful about calling our backyard in California a garden, (laughs) and we gardened in it. And it was important that it was a garden and that it had plants. She always talked to me about gardens. She loved loved gardening and always tried to get me out there to work with her. I never liked to actually do the work of gardening, so her (laughs) favorite story is that I would always She'd be showing me something, and then she'd turn around, and I'd be gone. So I was not a natural gardener in my youth, but um, but it was definitely something that existed. I think through the English children's literature that I read, mm-hmm. or that she read to me, and through what she told me about what was important. And where in California did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Palo Alto, California. English gardens and that use of of words is so is is an interesting thread, and it's something that my family also was very careful about. And you would get remarks from one of my uncles who would say, that is not a yard, that is a garden. Mm-hmm. There, there, is a, yeah. there is a prison yard and there is a school <laughs> yard. The, you know, there is a junk yard. This is a garden. So English was not your only background. What was your other background? My father's side of my family is Jamaican. And Interestingly, I think the Jamaicans, it's always sort of interesting sort of looking back into the different reasons for this. And I'm I feel and I'm sure that a lot of this is wrapped up around colonialism, but uh, the Jamaican side of my family did not emphasize gardening. Mm. They were very connected to studying and doing well in school and sort of having non-gardening related success. So that was an interesting contrast. I, I think all through my life, I've sort of had these two sort of contrasting views of how to spend my time and what to focus on. I definitely went on to study a lot and I did many years of schooling. And at the same time, I remember when my, um, I was a Girl Scout. My mom was actually my, one of my Brownie and Girl Scout leaders. 
she was really excited about plant identification. She didn't know many of the California plants. She knew all the English plants. And so it was her personal passion to go out there and identify um, California native species. And we'd hike and talk about plants. And we did that as part of our girls group, uh, the Girl Scouts. And um, and I was so into it. I I was I was obsessed with it. I memorized so many California native plants. I won all the awards and I was so excited about my little brownie patches. And, um, and that was like my jam when I was 11. Um, and, but at the same time in the rest of my life, I was really just focusing on school and trying to do as well as I could and really focused on sort of pretty serious studies. I did, I studied environmental science and public policy at Harvard for college. And then I went on to law school and I studied studied. I, I ended up studying cultural property and mm. landscape preservation. Really, I, I think by the time I was in in college, I studied, like I said, environmental science, but with a focus on environmental justice and really trying to incorporate my love for environmentalism with social justice work for people of color. Mm-hmm. Found that really exciting and interesting. And then when I started studying law, I was really trying to hone in on that I think all through my academic studies, I was learning all these things and trying to like bring it back to the garden. Mm-hmm. I was basically wanted to be in the garden the whole time, but instead was researching and writing papers about gardens. In law school, I did a regular JD at Columbia, and then I went and did a master's in law in London at University College London, focusing on landscape preservation, which was really fascinating. Yeah. Landscape preservation It exists here in the United States, but it's really well developed in the UK. And it was really interesting to just start to understand, okay, how do people's collective heritage and like the English identity, collective identity tie into what the landscape looks like and feels like. And the English are so connected to their, the chocolate box landscape and the hedgerows. And it really means something to them. I think we have similar meanings around land here or similar depths, but I I learned a lot about it there. And, but also connecting it to the European Union. Remember I wrote this whole paper about what is the price of wheat in set in Brussels? How does that affect the landscape in England and whether woodland is turned into farmland and whether it's corporate farmland, which is large scale fields or small scale fields with hedgerows. So that was really, really interesting to me and really sort of started to bring together all of my interests. And I thought, wow, I I really love this. This is what I want to do. But somewhere along the way, I I remember I was writing all these papers. I worked for the USDA's uh, Foreign Agricultural Service. And um, as some research that I had to do, I ended up talking with a bunch of English farmers. And one of them, I remember this woman, she just turned to me. She said, have you ever been to a farm? (laughs) I said, said, no. (laughs) And then I realized I was that government tool who knew nothing about (laughs) what she was writing about (laughs) and and that it was a problem. And um, so anyways, I started going to um, her farm and then visiting other farms. And I started uh, doing woofing on the weekend, willing workers on organic farms. It's an international program. So I started volunteering on little English homesteads and other farms on the weekends and just really loved it um, and really found, wow, I've been studying and researching and writing about these things for so long, but I actually just want to be here. Um, and I really enjoy it. So that was a big arc for me. 
Yeah, that's a very big arc. So I'm going to back up to the beginning of that arc just a little bit. Mm -hmm. At at what point did you realize that you were actually trying to get back to the garden? Like, did you know that consciously through this study in, in law and environmental justice and cultural property? Or was it kind of that you were dancing around the edges of it and it wasn't until this woman said this that you went, wait, this, this can actually be applied in person. I think I was always trying to get to my passion. Like I mm-hmm. always knew, wow, I'm really interested in a sense of place and I'm really interested in land and what it means to people and had a genuine interest in that and sort of a tr- tried to apply these sort of intellectual methods to it for many, many years. And I don't actually think I, this might have been the Jamaican side of my family. Being a gardener, or a garden designer was not a possibility. That right. was never an option. <laughs> so that never, that would never even, no, I was not like thinking about getting to the land in that way or being in the garden. Mm-hmm. It was completely off the table. I think it really actually happened by serendipity, actually happening to be in a farm setting. I think when it really happened was I spent these weekends and I really found that I was enjoying it. By this time I was working at a law firm and I was spending my weekends doing these woofing things, which I loved. And then I finally signed up for this two-week permaculture course out on this apple orchard in Herefordshire. It's a very rural England, and we learned about making apple cider and growing mushrooms on the dead logs. And and it was definitely right then. It was a turning point. I just realized, wow, I am completely immersed. I completely enjoy this, as opposed to my law firm job. I was not, I had not looked at the clock all day. (laughs) I was working with a smile. Like all these things just became crystal clear to me. And I said, oh, I am happy here. I like this, which I don't think I had experienced before in my, in work. How did that go over with your family when you said, hey, by the way, I'm going to give up law after all this study (laughs) and I'm going to go into farming? I guess, well, how is that still going over? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, again, I think um, I, I love your program because I think there's the scope and space for all of these sort of cultural questions. Again, it's such a cultural reaction. It's yeah. so interesting. I think that on my English side of the family, it's been pretty accepted. Like, that's a okay thing. And I think on the Jamaican side of my family, it's been a really um, difficult thing to accept. There's really such strong... Uh, importance placed on getting past working with the land, making progress as a family and as a part of a family. So being a gardener is, is does not really represent that for yeah. them. So no, it's been, it's been definitely hard. It's made me ask a lot of questions of myself of like, what right. is really important here? Right. And what is progress and what is success? Mm-hmm. And it is interesting, I think, when we reach these moments in our lives where we actually see what are otherwise kind of blind spots for us, what we we see, we have to face our own cultural biases and cultural Mm -hmm. identities that we didn't even recognize were there, right? Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Definitely. I I, want to get back to a couple of terms you used. Mm -hmm. I just want to clarify. When you say you were studying environmental justice and cultural property. What do you mean by cultural property? Yeah, I think it's a really fascinating concept. Cultural property is 
a piece of art, a really important piece of art is a great example of that. Something Mm -hmm. that we all know and it kind of it's owned collectively in Mm -hmm. some sense. Mm -hmm. Or maybe the California coastline is a better example. So there's the California coastline and it really is this beautiful thing. There are specific owners of pieces of land along the edges of it, but it it belongs to all of us. And so it is because it defines our culture and who we are as Californians. And so I think that sort of interplay between what is collectively owned and how does it affect our cultural sense of identity uh, is really important. And it is and complicated and, Mm -hmm. but, but so important. And it is such an important aspect of a good garden, of a meaningful garden. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's one of the elements that we don't necessarily articulate or even recognize on a verbal level a lot of times, but, mm-hmm. but we know it when we see it. We can say, that is an English garden. That is an mm-hmm. Italian garden. That is, And there's, of course, all kinds of you know, blends and mixes in there, but it's just it's an interesting concept. Yeah, I think it's super interesting. And I'll add, I also... Uh, I guess interests me and troubles me a lot about sort of gardening per se in this country right now is that there's a lot of sort of unsaid or assumed cultural like tropes or assumptions around the idea of gardening, which in this country are often really racialized, like gardening. What does that mean? And it somehow in this country, it often falls into this white middle class territory Mm -hmm. when in fact many, many people of color and of many different classes are also gardeners. But it's it's interesting how those sort of unsaid words, cultural tags, get get swallowed into seemingly neutral words like gardens or gardening or right. an American garden. What's an American garden? What, right. Um, and... You know, and then really exploring that and unpacking like yep. whose cultural property is this and who decided that and, and what does that all mean? I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today, we're speaking with Leslie Bennett, garden designer. The daughter of an English woman and a Jamaican man, Leslie has studied law, cultural property, and farming in California, England, and Jamaica. We'll be back to hear more about her journey, learning how to marry cultural diversity into gardens of beauty. Stay with us. Hey, Leslie Bennett's work never fails to inspire me. Since we last spoke with her last year, her work has been featured in several more national publications. But perhaps most powerfully, over the past few months, Leslie has realized a longtime dream in creating and kicking off fundraising for Black Sanctuary Gardens. Black Sanctuary Gardens is a series of aesthetic, edible, and culturally grounded garden installations serving as restorative plant-based spaces for the peace, self-care, and inspiration of the African diaspora in Oakland. Inspired in part by Alice Walker's naming of the garden as a site for Black women's spirituality, creativity, and artistic work, Landscape designer and garden installation artist Leslie Bennett is collaborating with visual artist and project manager Elizabeth D. Foggy to design, install, and visually curate a series of Black Sanctuary Gardens for Black women 
and Black Spaces, recently awarded the East Bay Fund for Artists Matching Grant by the East Bay Community Foundation, the Elena Museum, a 501c3 charitable organization, will receive the First Garden, a publicly accessible West Oakland green sanctuary for its African diaspora. Amidst gentrification and displacement of historically black communities in Oakland, the aim of the work is to help define, uphold, and celebrate black spaces. The team is excited for the opportunity to develop garden spaces that are reflective of their brilliant community and supportive of their specific experiences as people of color, and to offer sanctuary for black people to commune, converse, collaborate, heal, validate themselves, and be nourished. The program is accepting tax-deductible donations at their website, blacksanctuarygardens.com. In this time of increasing division and my own deepening comprehension of the harm that can and often has been privilege in this world, gardens and gardening have something necessary and powerful for everyone, and everyone can and should be held, grown, and empowered within them. Okay, now back to our best of conversation with Leslie Bennett. This is one of the beautiful things about gardening or gardens. They go back as far as human history. Every single culture on the planet has them. Every faith has them. Every literary tradition has gardens, and they look myriad different ways. And yet, I, I completely agree with you. When you, and I'm not even sure if it's when you say that word, because I think everybody goes back to their own kind of childhood understanding, but our cultural representation in the mass media is mm-hmm. white middle class often ladies gardening. Mm-hmm. And and that mm-hmm. uh, is, is very unsettling and completely not representative of who is out there on the ground gardening. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'll, I'll throw in another one like that too. As I sort of went along my, my journey with this, getting in touch with gardening and farming, after I, I left England and that permaculture course, I decided I wanted to actually become a, maybe if not become a farmer, I wanted to really have farming skills and learn how to grow food. And I went to Jamaica where I hadn't spent that much time as an adult. And so I moved there and I found an organic farm to work on. And I worked on this organic farm for eight or nine months. From there, then I went to um, Northern California and I worked on another series of organic farms in sort of deep Northern California, biodynamic, organic community up near Tahoe. And it was so interesting experiencing farming, quote unquote, or organic farming, quote unquote, in these two super different um, cultures and just seeing, wow, like we're growing food, but then look at all the different cultural trappings that are being attached to this. Okay, so give um, us some examples of that, like describe what that was like in Jamaica and then what it looked like, felt like, what those trappings were in Northern California. I remember specifically in Jamaica, it was was so funny to me. I had this idea, I think from England, you know, that when you're farm, you get dirt on your fingernails. That's almost like a badge of you're a real gardener. Right. Uh, you're out there <laughs> in the dirt. But the farmers in Jamaica that I worked with, this little mountain farm, we'd get up there each day um, in a local taxi. I remember I, I was working there with my now husband. I would sit down when I was tired. I'd sit on the dirt. It was red dirt that sort of stains your clothes. But I would sit down and 
take a break. He would say, get up, get up, don't get any dirt on your clothes. And the other, and they had a whole washing station. You had to scrub your nails. And most of the farmers brought a change of clothes so that they could work at the farm for the day. And then by the time they got back in their, the taxi to go home, there was absolutely no sign that they had worked with the land for the day. Uh-huh. Um, their nails were clean. Their, they had a fresh set of clothes on and there was no, no, no relic, <laughs> no, 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 uh, dirt. And, um, and so that was really culturally important there to to not have that dirt on you. And then I went from there to the super hippie farm up in deepest, darkest Mendocino, <laughs> uh, which was wonderful in many ways. And it was really interesting how it was really culturally important there to actually display the dirt. Like you had to have dirt under your fingernails or you were kind of a faker. And a lot of this was sort of mixed up with middle-class, white, young, organic farming movement, the things that were important to prove. But it was so interesting just really seeing, wow, like these are, it was really important to know the rules in both places and sort of do the thing to fit in so that you could be seen as a person of the land, Mm -hmm. a farmer, a gardener. And they were so polar opposite. It actually just made me laugh. I was like, yeah. do you know, last week I was just farming and I had to stay so clean. Right. And now I'm actually frowned upon if I want to take a shower more than twice a week. Right. You know, It was a really interesting and eye-opening experience just seeing how culture affects the sort of practice of gardening and all the cultural trappings that surround what we call gardening or farming. Mm-hmm. Um, and just really trying to separate those from the actual work of gardening and saying, hey, like we can all be farmers or gardeners. We can all work with the land. And I personally in my work have just tried to identify the cultural trappings that maybe don't aren't a good fit for everybody and make it feel exclusive or make it feel um, not welcoming mm-hmm. and just say, hey, like, get rid of all those things. And like what we're doing is working with the land, which is something that belongs to you and you and you and every single one of us, regardless of what you look like or dress like or feel like. And it gets to this idea, which I struggle with regularly. I don't want to sound like I am being so hokey or I'm exaggerating the importance of this universal impulse. But I, but I, at the same time, I just don't think I can over over elevate it because it is a sacred and historic act for all peoples and it is one mm-hmm. of our greatest connections to what's important in life whether that is you know nature or our community or our food or spirit and if we as the people who are taking part in this work don't elevate it or, or talk about it in the sacred way, then we do get sort of bound up in, you know, what our preconceived notions of what it means. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like it's up to us as gardeners and people who believe in its importance culturally and spiritually to keep talking about it in those ways with, with, with anyone yeah. who will listen. <laughs> no, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I'm, I'm so thankful that I spent so much time in my twenties traveling yeah. and, um, and, and that my journey to becoming a gardener and landscape designer now was so circuitous and yeah. took me all over the place and in different ways, because I feel like I, I was lucky enough to see in so many different places around the world and with different types of people from different socioeconomic classes, what gardening is to them yeah. and to like really like 
know exactly what you're saying, like actually see it and know it in my heart and be able to hold on to it. Because it's kind of hard to hold on to in the massive media images and just the Mm -hmm. stuff that comes by our way all the time. So no, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I want to pull us back around to your your tangible journey. And um, so at this point, you are working on farms in deepest, darkest Mendocino County. I love that <laughs> description. Is your is your husband here with you yet or is he still in Jamaica? Uh, he was still in Jamaica at the time. Yeah. So we spent almost a year together in Jamaica farming. And he was a fisherman and farmer and he taught me all that he knew. Um, and then I had, it was time for me to go back to the States. So I, I went to the state, spent a, I guess a good year and a half apprenticing on a series of different organic farms mm-hmm. in Northern California. Take us the next step. Yeah. So then there I was, I was working on these farms, really loving the sense of being more capable. Um, that was really sort of my goal. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to learn how to do some practical things and sort of take care of myself and really have real skills. And I did. I learned so much. It was really incredible. I, I was, <laughs> I remember there was one afternoon in the bean fields and I was just there were many, many rows of beans to be picked. And I think I picked beans, green beans for, I don't know, three hours. And I just thought, wow, this is not the joy I was seeking. I don't want to do this anymore. And on a less uh, visceral level, I also was looking around the farm and really appreciating or wishing that there was more design and beauty to it. I really appreciated the food and the utility. I think the organic farming movement 10 years ago involved rejecting mainstream life and being much more utilitarian or even aesthetic, rejecting frivolity and trying to save the world, grow food, really good, clean food, which I completely believed in. But I also was looking around and saying, where are the flowers? Why why can't we also have a beautiful space? Um, What happened to that? And um, I just started to get really interested in, okay, how can I grow the food and create a space that looks really beautiful and feeds my eyes and my spirit. That became my next corner that I turned. And so I found a, I found a gardener up in, up in the Grass Valley area who had been a landscape designer and then had been growing food and running a mini CSA for a couple of years. His name's Patrick. He completely changed my life and took me under his wing and taught me everything that he knew, which was a lot. And really, the, he was figuring it out too. So we did a lot of it together, just sort of tackling a piece of land and figuring out how are we going to make this beautiful and productive. Mm-hmm. Looking back on it, it was a very intellectual, heady time for us. Like we would talk for hours about why this mattered and then like how we were going to do it and how we were going to tackle a specific space. And I just loved that connection between like my heady intellectual side yep. and then the actual tangible, what are we actually going to do with our two hands and this pitchfork and like make this happen. Right. And so I worked with him for about a year and started a first iteration of my business with him. I wanted to go back to Oakland because Oakland is a black center in California and I wanted to be around black people and I wanted to be gardening with people of color. Yeah. Uh, that next iteration of my business was called Star Apple Edible Gardens. And um, I worked on that with my husband, Linball Owens, and with our other business partner, Stephanie Bittner. The three of us worked together for a couple of years, and I think it was it was also a really fun time. And again, we each sort of brought different skills to the to the party, figured out how to mesh them together and uh, how to sort of create these 
edible gardens, these yeah. beautiful edible gardens. There weren't other people doing it that much. Rosalind Creasy had written the books on it in the 70s, but there weren't a lot of other examples for us. Mm-hmm. And you can see in the progression, I think, of, of your work, your portfolio work, but also in the writing and publishing of The Beautiful Edible Garden, the sort of legacy of what Rosalind Creasy, a well-known uh, garden writer and specifically edible gardening advocate, that it has sort of grown up into the next sense of of aesthetics and style in an urban environment with your your book, The Beautiful mm-hmm. Edible Garden, which was published in 2013. And so then we sort of fast forward to Pine House Edible Gardens. When did you establish that? And what is it? Tell me about its name. I founded it two and a half years ago. The actual name, Pine House Edible Gardens, is also a reflection of my cultural heritage. Pine House is the term that the Victorians used for their first greenhouses, sort of like the Crystal Palace in England. And they were called pine houses because at one point in their colonial adventures, the English were um, very obsessed with pineapples and importing them from the Caribbean and growing them in greenhouses. The first conservatories were developed to grow pineapples and they were called pine houses. (sighs) I found that sort of moment where Jamaica and England had met in the horticultural world to be a really interesting one. Mm. And there's a lot of layers to it, which are not nice, exactly um, to say the least, which I'm aware of. But I chose the name anyways, because I, I think that those moments where cultures come together around plants are really interesting. There is just no getting around the fact that where cultures meet, there is often, especially in our culture, there is a lot of sadness and strife and difficulty, and yet I, I feel like if we work to transform them and move mm-hmm. forward, that that is that is one of the possibilities for how we how we improve the situation. And pineapples as that traditional um, symbol of welcome, and yeah. you mm-hmm. know this this love of this plant that was loved by these two cultures. Um, there's something beautiful to be to be harvested there. Um, I think so, yeah. I think it represents, like, that that concept just really represents, wow, there's a lot of depth there, and there's pain, and there's also exchange and joy. Mm-hmm. And um, I just like that, that there's so much in it. And that is my my heritage, and and so I wanted to express that in my in my business name. I, I want to talk a little bit about what you exactly do in your business, and so mm-hmm. maybe walk us through one or two of your most recent clients and the kinds of things you are doing um, in in this work of beautiful edible gardening, and um, and then we'll talk a little bit about your business model after that. I design. Uh, install and help to maintain and harvest from from edible landscapes. I really wanted to to be able to hold the whole thing and really have relationships with my clients from the beginning to end. I do a lot of sort of managing of the vegetable gardens, ongoing successional plantings and fruit tree management. And then I do a lot of design work, just figuring out what's this new space going to look like. And, and I really love it. It's a very, it's really mixed. It's gotten to the point where I kind of, I know what I'm doing now. I've been doing it long enough that I have pretty good systems in place Mm -hmm. and it's really fun. So that, and that's a huge thing. That's, that's taken 10 years to get to. So, um, (laughs) Um, I recently consulted and designed a garden for a Iranian doctor 
and her American husband. It's been a really interesting project because they're both gardeners. They love their garden. They do a lot of their own gardening. They're both doctors. They're very aware of the health benefits of growing different foods. And they had a lot of, they really wanted to grow chokeberries and acai berries and different things that they had read about and were exposed to through their medical work. Mm -hmm. And then as an additional layer, the wife in particular really wanted to connect with her Persian background and the Persian tradition of gardening and landscapes. The garden that we have just finished designing for them really incorporates all those things. And it's on a larger property, which has the capacity to have estate tendencies that we can do long allees and fountains and pathways and really bring in some of those traditional Persian design ideas uh, using water. And then we're using fruit trees like pomegranates and mulberries and walnuts that are really culturally significant for her. Mm -hmm. And then also things like turmeric and things that she's more familiar with for their medicinal and sort of just health purposes. It's been a really cool project that just brings together everything I think is fascinating about creating a landscape. If you think of something like the Alhambra in mm -hmm. southern Spain, so it's, yeah, it's dry, waterways are really important, and fragrance and citrus trees, um, edibles. Yeah. Um, yeah, all of those things. I was also going to say with this particular garden, it's in this pretty high-end, beautiful area with big estates and front gardens that are very sort of traditional with boxwood and grandness. And it's a front yard. And so it, it's interesting. There, you got to keep up with your neighbors in some way. So we've achieved this space that is equally fitting in the neighborhood, but it includes all these things that nobody else has, like the mulberry, like the mm -hmm. pomegranate. And because it's in the front yard, it's also public. So that's where that idea of sort of like the cultural property and collective yeah. ownership, like, of course, it's their front yard, but everybody else sees it. And that's where I start to get extra interested because then it's like, okay, how are we impacting the mm -hmm. collective imagination and collective awareness um, of what's possible? Yeah. Um, and also just like what how, people's awareness of how food grows and how connected we are to the land. Um, I think a lot of what I do really comes back to that. It's like, hello, people. <laughs> like We live on this earth. <laughs> that matters. It we matters. live off of this soil, yeah. um, which I think is really easy to lose track of in regular modern life. And so I love just showing people, hey, I'm picking this apple and I'm going to eat it. What I'm eating came from the soil <laughs> and really doing that as publicly and I think as beautifully as possible so that it captures people's eyes and it's something that they value. I'm Jennifer Jewell and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're speaking with Leslie Bennett, author, gardener, environmental and cultural property lawyer and activist about her work designing beautiful and functional gardens for a wide variety of people and reasons. We'll be back to hear more after a break. Stay with us. It's Jennifer and it's August now and Cultivating Place is curating for you a series of four best of conversations that seem timely and worth revisiting. This reminds us over here just how many valuable conversations we've had the joy of hosting with smart and caring and purposeful gardeners and plants or planet people these past few years. Just how much content we've created and produced. I'm humbled and proud to look back and dig in again to these conversations. 
This also gives me and Sarah a chance to work on long-range planning for some new elements of cultivating place in the works. It allows for some perspective building and overview thinking to ensure we're in alignment with the purpose and greatest goals of cultivating place. With luck, it will also allow for a few much needed longer mornings or longer weekends to enjoy summer in and out of the garden. I'm hoping you all are making time for the same. Okay, now back to our conversation with Leslie Bennett of Pine House Edible Gardens and Black Sanctuary Gardens. We talked about early in the conversation your skill with and knack for memorizing the plants, the native plants and their names of our area. And mm-hmm. you talked a little bit about growing up in California. How do, in this environmental bent, how do those the idea of the native plants of our area and the climatic constraints of our area, specifically our Mediterranean, very dry summer and hopefully wet winter. Um, How do those interface with your current gardens and your your garden philosophy with your clients, Leslie? I think that those interact in the sense that I try to try and really design gardens that make sense for our local climate. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't put in many lawns unless it's, I don't put in lawns unless it's insisted upon. I use a lot of Mediterranean or Mediterranean adapted plants in my garden designs. And I really focus on sort of use and purpose. There is, there is as much as we, there are lower water gardens, but like gardens do need water. So, and that comes up for me all the time. People are asking me what to do about that. And I just think it's really important to direct our water use towards something that's actually useful. That's Mm -hmm. giving us either food or flowers or providing wildlife for local native um, insects and and, uh, bees or habitat for for wildlife and really putting things to very specific use. Mm -hmm. What does your own home garden look like? I just bought our house two years ago and I've just finished the design for that too. It's my first, I think, truly cultural landscape that I've created. Mm -hmm. I really sat and worked on it thinking I'm going to spend time in here with my two-year-old son and what do I want him to know about who he is and where he comes from. And so I've really um, created the landscapes that draws upon plants uh, that are really important culturally, medicinally, culinarily from both Jamaica and England. It's going to be really gorgeous. I'm really excited about it. Okay, so I need some more specifics here. So one <laughs> one of the things I absolutely love about being one of your um, followers on social media like Instagram is, first of all, the, the absolute joy you take in your son and your apparent easy collaboration with your husband on things <laughs> that you both do, and which is, of course, no easy feat. And no one's going to put a picture on Instagram of them fighting with their husband over <laughs> right. where, you know, where the hose is going to go. But this ability to collaborate as a family and, and integrate these things in your home space must have been um, both a challenge and a joy. Yeah, um, no, that is, that is a really good question. Uh, and we've really learned that um, it's super important for us to each have uh, agency and control in different um, <laughs> different sort of spheres. So with the particular garden project, I got the backyard, he got the front yard. 
<laughs> and then we're both, we each did our initial passes at it and then get to have comments and edits. It's nice to be able to sort of be working in the same fields. And I, I help him with some design stuff. And sometimes he helps me with gardening things. Mm-hmm. When you say that this garden represents the cultural heritage that you would like your son to know about you and your husband, what does that actually look like in terms of plant choices or design elements, Leslie? Well, I think our back garden is a great example of that um, and of your previous question about how did we figure this out. Um, there was an, When we bought the house, we, we live in the banana belt of Oakland so that we can grow a good number of, sort of subtropical and tropical plants here. There was an existing tropical guava I thought was the ugliest thing on the planet and it's not my favorite fruit. And my husband loved it. He just absolutely loved it. It reminded him of his childhood and his favorite fruit. And so the guava tree stayed. Um, <laughs> and it is the, we, we have built the whole garden around it. I'm now so excited because that guava, I've actually come to love it. But I'm so excited that my husband kind of took a stand for it and that my son is going to know the taste of this guava fruit tree. He's going to know just how much it matters to his father. And he's going to have his own whole set of experiences with it. You know, we're also including things like lemongrass, which is something I grew up. Uh, lemongrass is called fever grass in Jamaica, and it's used to make a medicinal tea. And whenever you're sick, um, whenever I was sick, my father would make me lemongrass tea. So I want to make sure I have that in our yard and that my son knows what that is and how to use it. My mom used to always, her favorite thing in the world was rhubarb compotes or rhubarb stew mm. that we'd eat with ice cream. And mm. so mm-hmm. we're definitely going to be growing rhubarb in the garden um, so that I can make that for my son. And then there's things like quince, which became really important for me when I lived in England and had my first garden there. And when I, my first plant that I loved was the quince. So I didn't, my mom didn't make that for me, but it was very important for my understanding of my Englishness and my experience in that country. So there's a lot of different layers of foods that are, are important and that have sort of stories and uh, help me help me to know where I come from. And then I think that my son will grow up and he'll, he'll know what when the guavas are ripe. He'll know how to harvest the rhubarb. He'll know what to do with it. And um, I think that's one of the hugest gifts that I could give him. Yeah. And what does the front garden look like? The front garden? It's got, <laughs> it's got Japanese maples all over it, which is uh, my husband's call. <laughs> but it also has some really cool bananas and um, sort of lesser known, more low maintenance. I really believe in the front yard being a place that welcomes you, looks good all the time, and really gives like all season interest. Mm-hmm. And then we've included some um, things like drimis, which is mountain pepperberry. I have a banana that's going to sort of come and go with the seasons, cannas and beautiful flowers, um, but a lot of foliage interest and a lot of evergreen. Mm-hmm. And then the backyard is there's all the sort of all the other things that everybody wants dining table to sit and eat outside we have a space to like sit and comfy be comfy and read a book on a couch there's a little patch of lawn that was also something really important to my husband so we have a little no mow lawn man it was a squeeze to get it all I bet I was like my own worst client I wanted it all (laughs) for no budget I'm so pleased with it because it is it has everything we want it is possible it just takes thought it has all the layers of sort of practical use and cultural meaning and food production and flower production what are your favorite cut flowers in your garden what did you choose for that you know, uh, it's hilarious, or it's not that hilarious, but for me, it's hilarious, is uh, roses came to the top of the list for me. Um, when I started landscape design, I thought I was, 
I thought I was too cool for roses. I didn't like them. I was kind of a snob about them. And then over the years, I've really come to love them. I just realized I love them so much. Yeah. And part of that, I've actually felt uh, sort of a closeness with my mother, who also loved roses. Yeah. Um, I took this recent um, herbal medicine class that was sort of based on cultural heritage as well. And I chose the rose as my um, my plant because it's been with me all through life and I've had all of these times of rejecting it and accepting it and now yeah. I'm just straight up loving it. I got several roses and I have uh, trachelium, which is one of my favorite, trachelium hammer pandora. I have a couple of alstroemerias and then I have a whole patch just for cutting garden, mm -hmm. uh, just annual cutting flowers yep. and really changing things. Um, I love having lots of new things. I attended a Slow Flower Summit in Seattle, Washington. It was hosted by Deborah Prinsing the founder of the Slow Flowers Movement, and she hosted this weekend, and she, Leslie was one of her invited speakers, and she was uh, specifically speaking on a diversity panel on this topic of diversity in the floral and gardening world, which we kind of touched on earlier. And, you know, I, I think that in this world of ours, in need of thoughtful, intentional awareness and activism on so many fronts, I hear the history of your education, of your upbringing, of your different backgrounds and different family experiences, and the way you have moved your work forward. And I see it as some real part radical activism. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, and thank you so much for um, for all of that, and um, and especially I think for 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 seeing things I think similarly to the way that I do, I, I do see what I do as radical activism. I think most importantly, I it's been a I think just being a black person who is connected to the land and uh, being a black gardener and a black land uh, garden designer, it's been such a journey and it's been so hard to get here mm -hmm. that that alone, I think stands, I, I feel like just being myself and doing the work that I do and being open about uh, the fact that it is difficult to be one of the only black gardeners or black garden designers that's sort of out there publicly. It's, it is difficult to run a business and um, to have done all of that. So I, I, anyways, I feel like um, just being myself is this very radical act that, um, that I take ownership of. And then in general, I just really try and get myself out there more and let people see me as a role model that is for other people of color and black women particularly. And also just to let everybody else know that I exist and that I'm valid. That feels like my work. And I do think it's important. And, you know, I think what, what I was going to say also about running my previous business is that I really, I found that I really loved running a business as much as I loved gardening. Running a business, I really, I like, I like some of these terms uh, like sacred commerce or uh, I find that there's a lot of really, really special and authentic relationships that can be built through business mm -hmm. uh, and through transactions. And it's sort of a strange sort of realm to walk in when you're existing in capitalism, but also doing something that's really intimate, like growing food and helping people to become a little more self-reliant or a little more in touch with the land. I found that I really loved running a business. And I think Pine House Edible Gardens has been sort of this next iteration where I've been able to 
really explore like what does my gardening business look and feel like and what are my values that um, that I want to sort of live and practice through my through my work and business over the last 10 years I've really my own journey has been you've heard the journey today a lot about sort of becoming a gardener and becoming clear about what my role is with working with the land. I think another really big part of my journey has been around my blackness and really becoming clear about the fact that I am black, what that means, how I want to work with that and put that out in the world and uh, being radically black uh, as opposed to apologetically black Mm -hmm. Um, and really incorporating that into my garden design work, into my business work and into sort of my public presentation. And that's still a work in progress, but I'd say that's my most challenging work and uh, it's what's most important to me. Yeah, I, I so appreciate all, all of that. And, and I know, you know, when we spoke in person after the um, Slow Flowers Summit, these are not easy conversations. They're not easy for anybody. And mm-hmm. um, I do know that by just being open to having the conversation, that gets half of the discomfort out of the way so that we can move forward with whatever that transformation is going to be and put our put our five cents in for what we want it to be. Um, I agree. I agree. Yeah, half half the work is just being able to speak or uh-huh. articulate who you are and where you are in it to name things. Yeah, yeah and it, it is. It's always hard and it's always uh, in this society. It's just it's a very difficult thing to do. And it's, but it's so, what we have to do. It's what we have to do. And it's so damn rewarding when we do it. And you mentioned this idea of really enjoying this challenge of what it is to be a business owner and Mm. taking that opportunity to embody your values and your worldview into what it is to be a business owner. Um, Mm -hmm. Talk, talk a little bit about what, what that means to you in specific choices, because that has been really valuable to me to, to see you talk about in public settings. Mm, Thank you. Um, Yeah, I think, a lot of that is being a black woman business owner, really trying to understand what that is as opposed to just being a business owner and how I feel I feel very strong bent towards social justice. I think that's why I was put here on this planet is to help aid efforts towards social justice. And that runs counter to a classic landscape business model under late capitalism, where you are essentially your your purpose might be to provide excellent service for high-end clients. And at the same time, I really love creating things that are very beautiful and I need people who are interested in that and can financially support it. I find it endlessly fascinating slash challenging slash sometimes saddening or confusing. It's really hard to figure out how am I going to marry these two things and really do the work that I want to do, which is create beautiful things and move social social justice forward in the world. The most fascinating life question for me mm-hmm. is just how to marry those two. And I I think I'm getting better at it each each year. And, um, and, so when and it you, remains fascinating to me. Yeah. When you say that, give us an example of a decision you've had to make in which that has played out for you. Yeah, I was yeah, I was going to say it's both clients and hiring. Um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think with hiring, I am always seeking people of color to work for me and um I put a lot of effort into it and it's 
it takes effort. I could very easily end up with an all-white staff, and probably a lot of my clients would be very comfortable with that. So I really uh, take the time and effort to uh, expand my pool so that I'm bringing in different um, candidates for each job. Mm-hmm. And I guess do I do what it, whatever it takes to try and, and retain those people and keep that keep my my uh, pool of employees diverse. That said, it's not diverse enough. I mean, and it's it's hard. It's really, really hard. And it takes, um, I guess, in the word in the language of business, it just actually takes time and money. Like it is a um, it is a cost that I see as an investment and that I choose to put the time into. Um, and, and I can do so much better. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so I would say that with, with hiring. Um, and then with client, you know, again, I really, I really try and have a diverse range of client, but I really, um, I do a lot of outreach to try and I'll reach out to people who I know, people of color who either of any socioeconomic bracket, I'm really reaching out to people of color to say, Hey, I make gardens for you. I make a garden that can speak to you and that you'll love and I can do it for you. Mm-hmm. And that just is work too. It doesn't always yield a client. <laughs> it just sometimes takes a lot of time, but it's really important to me that I'm not servicing just one group of people. I want to be um, bringing gardens to all different types of people. And so, so I do, I do some gardens that are, I definitely do gardens that are for lower income families that I just don't make money on. And I don't do many of those, but, um, but I try and do, at least one or two a year. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely one of the areas that I'm trying to focus on and even collaborate with other garden designers and share resources. Yeah. Um, but it's so, it's so difficult to blend, you know, a, a, a sort of what can be seen as a luxury service business or parts that are really are luxurious, a luxury service business with, um, with really having a, a diverse, um, diverse client base and, and staff. Yeah. Yeah. I want to return to your son. What's your favorite thing right now to do with your husband and son in the garden? Oh, well, we've been picking a lot of grapes. That's been, um, we have a a sort of old rampant grapevine from an old client garden that uh, finally took over our whole fence line this summer. And uh, Samuel just turned two this summer and he kind of had his first summer in the garden and um, he learned what the grapes were and he learned how to tell if they were ripe. Um, And it's one of his favorite, he says, grape, grape. He looks out the window and he (laughs) wants to pick them. And we actually just finished picking all of them about a week ago. Um, but yeah, so that's been really fun. And just uh, we have some cherry tomatoes, too, that he really loves. So yeah, just going out there and picking and tasting and um, just seeing that he uh, he knows not just the grapes that we eat inside out of the fridge, but he actually knows where that plant comes from and he knows how to pick them and how to know uh, when they're ready. Yeah. So yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for being with us today, Leslie. It's been an honor to have you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your inviting me. It's really nice to speak to a kindred spirit. Leslie Bennett is the founder and owner of Pine House Edible Gardens in Oakland, California. Her garden design earns national recognition, most recently in garden design and better homes and gardens. Her garden design work and her business management both draw on her background in environmental law, cultural property, and social justice. She believes deeply in our gardens representing our cultural heritages and informing our futures. 
She writes, It is so important and exciting to her that as her business has become more established, she's been able to recruit gardeners of color as staff and been able to take on interns of color and train them to be lead gardeners on her team. She's also been able to reach out and take on more people of color as clients, regardless of their budgets. Her ability to do more of this is growing as her business does. And her real goal with this is not around diversity in and of itself, but rather around the fact that gardens and gardening and just plain old natural beauty have been so important for her own happiness and joy. And she understands her work as helping to make these joys more available to everybody especially black people and people of color. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways that people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. To subscribe to the Cultivating Place podcast so you never miss a conversation, as well as to read more about and see many photos from Leslie Bennett's work with Pinehouse Edible Gardens, head over to cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.